It's Extra Drama for book number 19, Showdown, with me, your host, Marissa Flaxbart, and my guest, Mark Sullivan. Are we allowed to talk about the fact that all of these characters are, by default, white? I kind of think that talking about it is the only option. You know? Right. Because we can yeah. ignore it because... At our peril. There are no, you know, people of color to talk about. But then yeah. it's like we're... I think we're falling we prey to that whole... Yeah, I think yeah. We, then we fall prey to the whole, like, white as default myth. Yes. That's true. Because a lot of the characters, I mean... It's challenging, but, like, I found it hard to distinguish a lot of the male characters, at least initially, because they're all described the same, handsome and well-tanned. Like, that's it. Yeah. And the only thing that's distinguishing them is one's a photographer, one's in flight school, one's tennis, you know, the captain of the tennis team, one's, like, what is it, the Centennial Commission, but they're all literally, the it's the exact same thing, like, muscular, handsome, well-tanned. Yeah, it, Robin in this book has... They describe her boyfriend, Alan Walters, I think is her boyfriend's name. Mm-hmm. And I was confused for a second if it was the same Alan that was also a photographer for the newspaper or mm. if it was a dif- that was a different Alan. I'd been thinking it was the same Alan this whole time. Yeah. But that's only because they don't really have they, a physical description. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, like, intentional or a flaw in the writing. Is it so that, like girls who were reading it could just ascribe it was vague enough that they were just thinking about the boys in their classes and then it becomes like more personal or is it just like the author didn't bother because you know what i mean is that lazy writing or is that like intentionally vague to allow for like you know purposeful ambiguity i think actually you make a really good point that it would probably be easier for girls to fantasize like whoever their favorite heartthrob mm-hmm. was, whether it was someone famous or someone at their own school. Yeah. They can picture him like, well, he has sandy blonde hair, so he must look just like yeah. Joey. You know? Because it's that game where you, you know, you cast the movie of your life with actors. It's like the reversal, right? It's like, oh, Joey is clearly going to be playing Alan when we make the movie of Sweet Valley High number 19 showdown. Mm -hmm. Like, and then that gives it a sort of like creative intimacy. Yeah. That if the author had created very distinct characters, you might have, you know, it might be harder to connect with potentially because they'd be real, (laughs) you know, like instead of just, this is all like a fantasy cloud in the reader's imagination. And it's one of those things too, like in radio dramas, like the idea is that it can be very vivid because it's the theater of the mind and you are the one actively creating the images. Mm -hmm. So if this is very vague in its description and the only thing you know about him is that he's well tanned, then you have to do more work in creating those characters. Yeah, that's true. I think that generally speaking of a writing perspective, you try not to have to make the reader fill in the blank with something that could be wrong. I mean, I guess it depends on how much you care about it being a specific thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to leave the details of a room, whether it's a room or a person or a town or whatever, you want to leave it up to their imagination, then you can Mm -hmm. leave it blank. But that sometimes that's considered sort of like lazy or actually less in character description than I think in character motivation. Yeah. Like, um, have you seen First Man? Yeah, not yet. 
Um, well, this won't spoil anything to say that... Do they do they get to the moon? Uh, Mark, I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> um, so we'll skip the ending. Uh-huh. Do they or don't they do make they it get to, to the, the moon? moon which right. is actually uh, like a primary tension of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think they pull it off better than I thought they would based on the trailer. Can I pin that for a later sidebar? Yes. Okay, great. Please. The idea of creating the tension of, you know, how will this turn out when it's actually... Uh, historical drama, mm-hmm. you know, like you already know how the history unfolds. So how do you as a creative storyteller engage an audience so that they feel like they don't know where the story is going, mm-hmm. but well, I don't know. We're talking yeah. about it now, so we can go ahead and talk about it. Well, I totally derailed I your say. thought and I don't want to yeah, do that. I can, I can pin that. Okay. <laughs> that can be the pinned thing. All right. Now we have three pins going. No, I was just listening to something. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm-hmm. Who wrote, um, Team of rivals. Oh, brotherhood of, of enemies. Frenemies. Well, circle, Frenemies. circle of enemies is nice because it's like circle of friends, the movie, but circle of enemies. No, it's called Team Where of Where Abraham rivals. Lincoln is played by uh, Minnie Driver. <laughs> that sounds like a good movie. Yeah, I'd, I would I'd watch that. It. I would pay $17 at Arclight. So, <laughs> so Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, was talking about having read Barbara Tuchman's uh, Guns of August, uh, the really comprehensive account of the First World War, and saying that she was a writer who made you feel like you were, you didn't know how all of this was going to turn out, and that the goal of a historian when writing about history is to um, tell the story in the moment as if you, the historian, don't know what the next moment is going to be. So if you can figure out a way in that it is present in that reality and trying to understand what the decision makers and the participants knew at the time, not what the consequences of their actions would be, you engross an audience. And um, that's it. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, that is actually... Which uh, brings us back to Sweet Valley High. But First Man, though. That's the pin. Yes, But that it applies directly to that. It is a story where I think in the movie, even though you know how things are going to turn out, hopefully... Um, they do you because the characters don't know how it's going to mm-hmm. turn out, and they make the everybody involved, um, you know, Damon Chazelle, the actors. I think that they make it that make that very real. Screenwriter. One thing about it that was, I don't know, I, I don't quite know how to feel about it is that there's a. I have been describing it to people as saying I liked it, but you know, there was a lot of face acting. Ah. Um, so a lot of the emotions and the the drama are coming across without anyone actually saying what is going on. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to, it's easy to tip over into exposition and it feels like pointless exposition where it's unrealistic to have these characters dumping their emotions. And the fact that these characters in this era and these people specifically do have their feelings a little bit repressed. Much is more a very, yeah. It's a very important part of the story. But to the effect that at the end of the movie, it might be possible for you to leave the theater without really understanding what the primary conflict beyond the surface level of will we get to the moon was. And the movie wants very badly to have a very deep emotional conflict. And I drew my own conclusions about what I was pretty sure was going on. But I felt like I was making a leap to get there. And i that's something that I have mixed feelings about. um, Because... Like, you don't want to have your hand held, but you also don't want to have yeah. to be guessing. Yeah. Yeah. 
You have you ever had a conversation with somebody after a movie, especially where there you have a problem with part of the story, like, but they didn't explain why this how this could work, mm-hmm. and the person has this long explanation that they've just made up yeah, about they how... filled it in as backstory and it's yeah. completely not based in the reality of the experience. They're yeah. just trying to frame it for themselves, right? And getting back to Sweet Valley, that's what girls can do with boys. <laughs> We did it. It all ties in. We did it. Yeah. Talking about the vagueness of the character descriptions and the purposeful ambiguity of that, I was thinking of when they cast an African-American, or I guess African-British, actor to play Hermione Granger in the West End, right? Uh Uh-huh. And... Uh, everyone, there was like this response online from, you know, racists saying, Hermione can't be white. And then J.K. Rowling was like, actually, the only thing I ever said about her physically was that she had curly hair. Yeah. So it's or like dark curly hair. Like there was never, you know, a, never an acknowledgement of what her skin color was. Um, but she was able to create characters that were so interesting because we understood the characters, not necessarily what they looked like. I mean, I think Harry had glasses and the scar, right? And like a mop of brown hair. But like Hermione has like frizzy hair or curly hair. It's always a description of her hair, which is actually pretty ambiguous and fits entirely. If you want to have a black Hermione in your mind, that fits. And the fact that we... A lot of people automatically assume that she's white. I mean, obviously, it was helped along by the fact that the movie ha- cast a white oh, British actress. Oh, I think that's actress. a huge part of it. But, like, not necessarily. Yeah. Those books were out since, what, 1994? Yeah. So. I think that that's great. And, like, whoever should play Hermione, it doesn't matter at yeah. all. And I, I think it's... I think that I feel like it's cool that J.K. Rowling came to Defended the aid it. of, like, this is you're being ridiculous, Mm -hmm. like, because it wasn't explicit. But I feel like she's kind of kidding us all. I do a little bit because there are several other characters in the books whose race is described. Yeah. So, or or there are characters where she did something that I think is a pretty good technique, which is you give characters appropriate names for whatever their, like, racial background is. Like, Cho Mm -hmm. Chang is the character. Mm -hmm. There are the, um, like, the Patil uh, twins. Right. Um... And so, like, you don't have to guess about what race those people are uh-huh. because it's in their names. Right. But, like, there's a character named Kingsley same... Shacklebolt who is described as being a black guy. Yeah. Uh, but at it's, the same it's time, not a like, at least in the United States, I, my last name is Sullivan, which is very Irish. And I went to school with a number of uh, African Americans whose last name was Sullivan. Which has its own particular, like, history here, like, in the South, right? Like, there was a reason for that. But there is there is room for ambiguity. But I kind of feel like Sweet Valley High doesn't allow a lot for that. Both, it's this weird thing where they're both vague about the character descriptions, 
but the characters are obviously white. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's not... Yeah, because you're right that um, there's no way that you could use that same trick to describe... Unless you were describing someone who was, like, of Nigerian descent or something. Like, right. you could have a character that had a sort of signatory last name. But, for the most part, that's not going to work with, uh, you know, black characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, in Sweet Valley... It also, it would be they would spell it out. I mean, they they just would. I mean, it happened. Yeah. There are some like characters that are a non-white characters that come up later on in the series, and it's always like what the book is about. Yeah, the fact that they're not white, right? Um, and uh, you know what? I'll go ahead and say like there are surely many many communities of people reading these books where that was there that would have been their reality too. Mm-hmm. But it is a little bit like. Meh frustrating. Yeah, do you celebrate the fact that they were purposely trying to introduce people of color into a very homogenous, you know, world that they'd created? Or are you kind of reducing those characters to their status? Right. As people of color. Yeah. By saying like their storyline is about them being a person of color right. in a white world. Yeah, I don't... Well, and I think it's probably worth considering that if it really is, if Sweet Valley really is this almost entirely white community, mm-hmm. then if there were a person of color that lived in that community, their they experience... They would have to deal... Yes. Yeah, that would probably be the experience yeah. that they're having, so... We're talking but, about a very privileged group, yes. hypothetically privileged group of teenagers in the 1980s in Southern California right mm-hmm. near the beach who fly planes and have you know intramural tennis club and like it's a very privileged group of teenagers intentionally so like i think a lot of um what the book is about is materialism and kind of this aspirational uh, like, oh, I want to be richer. I want to be more popular. I want to be more mm-hmm. glamorous as a 15-year-old girl reading this. Therefore, like, that's the world that they created. It, yeah. It's kind of like uh, movies during the Great Depression were not necessarily about, like, the real-world struggles of people in the Great Depression. It was about, you know, highly... Uh, uh, like rich and glamorous people mm-hmm. doing rich and glamorous things. It was like this aspirational escapism. Right. And um, that's kind of what I was taking from it. It's like, why are all of these kids, like their parents are successful titans of industry who buy their children planes? Like it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's in an interesting point. It, that makes me think of two things because earlier on when you were talking about this, I was thinking how one of the things that's a shame about there not being any non-white characters for the most part in this book is that there were a lot of little girls reading these books that were not white and that they, they couldn't do that thing we were talking about at the beginning of like, if they presume, I mean, maybe they could, but presuming that the boys in their school didn't have sandy blonde hair, they're not going to be able to picture their crush in the role of sandy blonde hair boy. Right. But, um, 
at the same time, even for little white girls reading these books, the aspirational element, like the fantasy element of it, was part of the the selling point. Yeah. So I'm sure that was true for every, regardless of race, for for kids. Like how many kids reading these books were reading them and being like really relating to Lila as the right. as the rich girl that has a servant who, uh, you know, calls the doctor the moment that she sees she's sick and like yes, you know, it's and these books weren't for. 17 and 18 year old girls. No. They were for 13 and 14 year old girls who were already looking up to girls in their schools who were running the newspaper and dating like, you know, the the cool senior or th- so I think driving. Driving. <laughs> so there's already an aspirational quality to the relationship between the reader and, you know, the story. So why not just kind of run with it and make them all fabulous and glamorous? Yeah. And I never thought about the driving thing um, comes up sometimes on the podcast because the book really um, obsesses over everybody's cars, like what what make and model and color their cars Uh are. Uh, And so I never thought about the fact that the girls that would be, or boys or whoever, who were reading these books were not able to drive yet probably mm-hmm. and so the, the the car would be a real object of desire it's thrilling you know because it's it also freedom. It, freedom yeah it's independent it's being able to get away from your parents you're sick of your parents get out get out of the house oh, you yes. have that freedom when you have a car yeah or when you are able to like cozy up with people who have cars right like, that's huge. That was such a huge part of my high school experience. It was like having to get a ride home from yeah. someone mm-hmm. until I was... A- and then I was the person that gave a ride home once I, like, had possession of the car. Like, yeah. But in order to get possession of the car, I had to rejigger my schedule around my parents or my dad um, and what... Like, when he needed to be picked up from the train station and this and that. Like, my life was built around being able to drive the car. And I willingly, like, gave up. You the... grew up in Orange County, right? No, no. No, no, no. Oh, Illinois. No? Well, at this point, I was in Northwest Indiana. The, that's right. That's uh, right. Um, sort of suburban Chicago. There was no, like, transit of any kind. And I was everything was too far away to walk or bike or, bike or anything. So, um, yeah. And then... I was just, it's funny to think like the lengths that I was willing to go to, to be the person that got to, that got to give the ride as opposed to if yeah. you had to find the ride. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause that gave you like authority and cause there's a hierarchy. Yeah. Right. I don't remember where you're from. Uh, Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the same thing. We, the same thing. Everybody. Yeah. Cars. You need to have a car. Gotta love your car. Yeah. Suburban Virginia. Yeah. What kind we of car stuck. did you drive? Uh, I didn't have a car. Yeah. Um, but I borrowed, my mom had a, uh, a Camry. Oh, what color? Very, it was dark green. Ah. Very sensible. I also didn't have a car of my own. I drove the one car we had. It was a Plymouth Voyager. Oh, all right. Which is a minivan. It was yeah. maroon. <laughs> and then I think we might have traded that in for some sort of Chrysler Town and Country, maybe? Also maroon. Also a minivan. But almost identical. <laughs> Excellent. This has been enlightening. Yeah. I think this Should we might, start the podcast? I think we should start the podcast now. <laughs> Listeners, we usually record this episode after the main episode, but this time we're doing it the first time. Because I can't stop talking. Well, I like that about you, Mark <laughs> Sullivan. We have one last order of business, which is to tease book 20. Oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Can George and Enid avert disaster? 
Find out in Sweet Valley High, number 20. Crash Landing. Crash Landing. All right, I think I think that'll be good. Yay! Oh my gosh, that was so great! That was so much fun.